0: The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge.
1: The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way.
0: Welcome to the Chat Lounge. I'm Tuyun. As the 1.4 billion Chinese have embraced a year of the Chinese dragon, the legendary creature, according to the Chinese culture, is expected to bring great luck, especially to agriculture. As the Chinese dragon, a symbol of water, is regarded as the protector of farming. But how do we turn this luck into reality? In its number one central document, the first policy blueprint published by Beijing at the beginning of each year, the Chinese government has outlined the priorities for consolidating its rural revitalization drive this year. In this special edition, we take a look at why the priorities are critical and how the plan may be carried out to promote comprehensive revitalization in its countryside with insights from expats who've made rural China their home. According to the number one policy document to promote Chinese modernization, It is essential to consolidate the foundations of agriculture continuously and push forward rural revitalization comprehensively. It highlights the need to continue focusing on enhancing rural industrial development, of which studying and applying the Green Rural Revival Program's development philosophy is believed to be key. Americans Morgan Jones and Daniel Willers, who've been living in China with their families for more than a decade, share the vision while chasing their green food farming dream in the country's vast northwestern qinghai Xizang Plateau area.
1: Yeah, the investment, 100,000 U.S. dollars, is the registered capital of our company. Um, we grow 30 to 40 different types of fresh produce. That, that's the main focus. Mainly vegetables, um, though we do grow um, strawberries we, we can grow those year round and then we grow some some fruit products uh, in the summer uh, but yeah vegetable production is is the main one
2: for organic products, I would say that that we're still a bit ahead of the market in Shanghai here mm-hmm. um, it, it's kind of something that we're developing as our farm is developing kind of creating a market for our products and so they're definitely you know, some challenges involved with that. But actually, interestingly enough, you know, the, we just came out of the pandemic the past few years, and we found that it, as people were more concerned about their health, uh, there became more and more interest in the local consumers about having this organic, fresh produce straight from farm to their table. We're pretty confident, actually, that we're going to see the, the end result of all of our, you know, sweat equity right um bearing a return on investment in the coming years and i think that's part of what keeps us going too is mm-hmm. knowing that we're not doing this for for nothing and at the very least you know people are having a chance to eat food that can help their bodies stay healthy and that's a that's a return on investment right there that's true you know, it's not all about the the financial side of things we want to talk about the planet, and we want to talk about people, and we want to talk about profit. Like, all these things are important. Mm. And, and we've already started to see, I think, those returns happening outside of the profit one. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we just listen, there's, there's birds around here that when we started a few years ago, you... There was not as much wildlife Um, in this little area. Um, And so we're already seeing the planet kind of making progress and being improved. And that's rewarding. You know, seeing our employees having kids and building a family, that's rewarding is just being part of their process of life.
0: While food and vegetable production remains the cornerstone of the rural economy, emphasis is also placed on the deep integration of rural culture and tourism, with construction of rural tourism clusters and villages and promotion of ecotourism like forest therapy and leisure camping. Seeing the business potential there, Ian Hamilton from South Africa and Brian Linden from the United States share their experiences over the past decade in running hotels and villages.
3: I'm very happy. I think village life is fantastic, especially in China. It's There's such a sense of community in China and villages, which we don't really have so much in the, in the West. Um, but everybody knows everybody. In the village I live in, everybody's related to everybody. Um, <laughs> but they all call me uncle and big brother and mm. grandfather or whatever. And it's this beautiful feeling where everybody, you feel like one big family. Right. So I, that's
4: what I love the most about countryside right. life. We felt that in many cases, China and its push for economic kind of improvements would often move the things were happening so quickly. And sometimes the idea of preservation was not taken as seriously as maybe I feel we should now. And I think we're reevaluating that, you know, Mm -hmm. here in China. So I feel it's very similar to Ian. These buildings in many Mm -hmm. ways still have so much purpose and still serve as such a touchstone for the foundation for Mm -hmm. the local people. And it's a sense of pride and we only worked with the locals as well yeah. in restoring these buildings it was their grandparents great-grandparents who built them why should we be bringing people from outside to work on these buildings yeah. so um, i feel very similar you know yeah. ian often the travel companies travel
3: around china visiting different places and we contacted them and they came and looked and said oh we this is what we want is a chance for foreigners to stay in the countryside mm-hmm. not all in big cities
4: in a way our business um, may be similar to Yen's, in a way it's our social enterprise right. it's a way of making you know some money of keeping us going but there's so many other things i want to do as you know we do education yeah. we do i have a museum we do volunteer libraries we're developing hiking trails into rural and that's kind of our goal that's what inspires me and um, the, the hotel is really our way of, in some way, funding yeah. those things. Just like you with your arts and architecture. You wanted to protect that building. Yeah. And I wanted to protect that building as well. And we, we came up with a way, way, a way <laughs> yeah. to make it work. Yeah. You yeah. Know?
0: Both of you chose to preserve the building, to preserve the original style. But were you required to do this in the very beginning by, you know, by local authorities? Or was it your original plan? I think we have different stories, yeah. but you can go
4: first if you want.
3: Um, no. When I first uh, started, because I'm an architect in South Africa, when uh, you want to do a renovation or a new building, the first thing you do is go to all the government departments and get approval. So you go to the fire department and the planning. And so in Yangshuo, I then said to my, my business partner uh, that she should go to all the different government departments and see what sort of approval and what requirements they are. And they all said, Yeah, there's nothing, just do it and then come back when you're finished to get all your licenses. Mm-hmm. So there was never any requirements from the government for us until we'd finished all the work. And then we had to go to all the different departments. And then they came along and kind of said, Oh, the fire department said, Oh, there's way too much wood. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fire risk. And so, but then they you know, worked with us and told us how to solve it all. But during the building process, they had no requirements. Because I thought the, uh, the first house I rented was so beautiful, I wanted to preserve as much of that as possible. And I wanted the feeling of it being a house, not it being a hotel or something. Mm. So my thought from the very beginning was the person who built this building 150 years ago or whenever, if they were here today and they were going to change it, how would they change it? I'm sure they would use new building materials because there are new building materials available, but they would want to keep the spirit of the building. Sure. So that's what I tried to do was change it because it's obviously its use is changing and we had to put bathrooms in and all these mm. types of things, but to try and keep that original spirit of the building. Mm. So for me, the happiest thing ever was when we got Chinese customers come, I think the first spring festival, we had a Chinese family came and booked. When we opened, we only had six rooms. And they booked all six rooms and they said wow. they wanted to go home for the spring festival, mm-hmm. but their village, the buildings had already been knocked down and they'd come to the secret garden when I was building and they'd seen it. And they said it gave them the feeling of going back to their own home in their wow. village. Um, and so that made, that was so happy <laughs> that day. <laughs> Cause that was what it, that was really, all I wanted was to like, still keep that feeling of it. Of it yeah. Like going home.
0: And uh, Brian, when it comes to your story, the Yang Pjiang's house and the Bao Zheng's house, uh, two component of uh, Xilingyuan, Yuan, are national heritage sites, right? Yes, yes, So there are strict requirements when it comes to their preservation and development. Have the rules made it much harder for you to renovate? or turn it
4: into Yeah, I think that rent, you know, renovating a heritage site is often much more expensive mm. and much more complicated than building new. And even after a renovation, even if we throw, throw a lot of money at this project, we still can't replicate the comforts right. of a newly constructed hotel. So we feel that in some ways these old buildings um, Deserved restoration. We needed to restore them. Almost in a 梁子床秀就如酒, the idea of just preserving them. We were not going to alter them to cater to outside tourist interests. Mm -hmm. All we were going to do is present them, you know, preserve them and present them to the public. Mm -hmm. And if people were enchanted by their original charm, all the better. Mm -hmm. But what we had to do was inject a lot of content so we have education programs as you know each each linden center has about 50 percent of the space dedicated to public spaces Mm -hmm. where we are now here we have a cooking school we have a fitness kind of complex we have a yoga center a conference center and we've dedicated so much of what would be a typical businessman's you know efforts Mm -hmm. in maximizing all the space and turning them into guest rooms. Mm. We have turned them into public spaces so that the public still feels very, very welcome here. And that's hard to do. It was really hard to do. We had a lot of, they continue every week to come and visit Mm -hmm. and check to be sure that nothing is being altered. So, but the government has been so supportive. And I believe they're supportive because they support our values they support the values of what we're trying to achieve. Mm. And that's something that we're always quite honored that we have had this opportunity to do this, right. these kind of projects.
0: Can you recall any difficult parts of, the, of these buildings, you know, that were very hard to repair?
4: Oh, of course, of course, <laughs> just like you. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> we had so many and, you know- Give us was, an example, like which we'll, part? Well, in the Yang Pingchang, you know, when we first did this, I had a hard time at articulating oh. what we wanted to achieve. So we, you know, that is why I call the the place center, Mm C-E-N-T-R-E. I called it that because we didn't, the hotel was our social part. I mean, our business part. We wanted to do so much more than that. Mm -hmm. So it's not called the Linden Hotel or Shizhou Hotel. Mm -hmm. Um, We called it a center because we really wanted to have a social impact and preserve. Um, When I first articulated this image or vision to the government, um, they didn't realize that we wanted to have bathrooms in the room. Oh. <laughs> so they thought that, you know, the complex is, you know, uh, 200 meters long, and they thought we could have a bathroom at the end of one complex so that people in the middle of the night would have to walk 200 meters to the bathroom. Mm. So all these things were very, very challenging. How do you incorporate the plumbing into an old structure? Mm-hmm. And we've, we've, I think, done a really good job of doing that without destroying in any way mm. the original structure.
0: And Brian, you mentioned you've held a lot of um, activities to make your hotels more attractive to people in the country or from uh, outside the country around the world. So among all the activities you offer, which one has been the most popular?
4: You know, every day we offer two free tours. All right. here to everyone who stays at the center. And one mm. is a tour of the Shijo village, and then one is an architecture tour, the traditional architecture of the region. Mm, that's nice. One of the things that I'm proud of pre-COVID is that we used to offer to all our guests so an opportunity to share their passions. So for example, if Ian, if you were to come to Shijo, we would say, Ian, you're an architect. Could you share your experiences okay. of being an Experience, architect yeah. around the world, doing what you're doing with the villagers, not just with our guests? Mm. But that is why we build places that allow us to sit 50, 70 people. So then in the evenings, we open that up to the public. And what that means is for the guests themselves, it gives them an opportunity to have an interaction with the local people Indeed. that is much more genuine. It's yeah. not like we're just sitting there taking photos of them. Yeah. We're sharing our own passions with them and they're asking questions back to us. Mm. And this is something that I was very, very proud of. And I would, we will continue doing this in the future. Mm. The other thing is that our mission was always diplomacy. How did we tell the story? I have been able to interact and partner with some very, very important schools around the world mm. to bring their students to the small village of Shijo, And not just for a week, but sometimes for four months, a whole semester, mm-hmm. and that includes President Obama's girls' school. Mm-hmm. We have America's leaders' children coming to a small village in rural Yunnan, mm-hmm. and they are coming here and they are studying the village. It's incredible, Yunnan, and that becomes their curriculum, and they get credit for it. And they go on, and they will be America's future leaders. Yeah. They will always hold some kind of fee- emotional tie to China. And we are always looking at ways to really do that. We feel that's the foundation of soft power. Mm. And so we are always trying to create these ways of, enhance, of just sharing China's soft power in a more genuine way.
0: To enhance rural development, the first central policy document stresses the importance of refining the rural public service system. This includes providing public education services and establishing boarding schools for migrant children and those left behind in villages while their parents work in urban areas. South African couple Stephen and Ruth Crean, who've been teaching life skills in English in a small county in central China's Hunan province, elaborate on the significance of such a policy for contemporary China.
5: I think they with that group of kids, they're almost two groups within that group and the one group is becomes a lot more independent and so without their mom and dad around to do things for them they have to learn to do things by themselves Mm -hmm. and so we have seen some kids who are extremely independent and quite mature for their age um, in terms of things that they're able to do on their own Um, but then we also have a lot of kids who we can really see the hole um, that parents have left Mm -hmm. um, in their lives and so, yeah, these kids do need a lot of extra help um, just in dealing with daily things that happen in life. And it, to be honest, it's quite a, a heartbreaking situation for mm-hmm. me because, yeah, we, we know that parents are so valuable in a family um, and in, in a child's development. So, yeah, it's it's quite sad to see mm-hmm. lots of kids um, lacking that care, and love and teaching that a parent would normally give
0: or in your daily teaching, would you spare more time for, for such kids? or
5: Yeah, we would definitely try to. And mm-hmm. um, there's not always opportunity in a lesson that has um, lots of kids to care for. Um, but as much as we can, and um, we, do, we do try and make space um, for, for those kids and to help them with um, mm-hmm. things that they need help with.
0: And one interesting phenomenon is that um, some left behind kids, they are more active, were physically stronger than those who have parents by their side.
5: Yeah, we have seen that. Um, there's there's actually one of our um, adventure club kids. I think he's maybe grade five or six at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, his parents are working elsewhere. And We recently did a cooperation with a sports center um, where basically we joined with them. They taught the sports side of things, and we taught some English amongst that. Um, and this kid... Um, Who was part of our club. He was fantastic at all of the sporting activities and had brilliant hand-eye coordination, brilliant body awareness, Mm. Um, and he was able to complete the circuits much faster and with much greater agility than some of the other kids.
6: Yeah. So um, just to to clarify for listeners, left behind children refers to children whose parents have gone to seek better employment opportunities in bigger cities.
0: Thanks for that clarification.
6: Yeah, yeah. And I would just say, um, I think there are two groups, because I think the reason for that that trend is that those children are, are looking for a way to process the, their emotions. So, so I think for, for every child who has to deal with um, parents being away, there obviously are going to be strong emotions. Mm. And one of the ways that kids process those emotions is to be more active because you know sports it releases endorphins it helps you to to process negative emotions which i would say is is the the positive one the negative one is you know with the rise of technology is a lot of those kids end up you know on cell phones or in front of a tv Mm -hmm. that's where they go to process those emotions which is a lot more worrying i would say which is also why we want to yeah, offer classes and opportunities for kids to learn to be more active with their bodies and be exposed to just good ways to, to process and deal with, with emotions. With the left behind kids in those environments, we just have to do our best to include them and to have, yeah, to, for us to be there to support them or to have... Teachers to support them um, and just yeah you know, just help them to know that that they're not alone. Um, but also often but actually, the, with the left behind kids, they'll, their grandparents are looking after them, yes. um, and so often the grandparents will be attending those events. And the grandparents are interesting in that, you know, a lot of them come from an era where um, education wasn't as readily available, so they are often at a loss for how to support and help their grandchildren and so part of what we want to do with those events is to give the grandparents opportunity to have that good interaction with with their grandchildren Um, and then often we we need to have a conversation with grandparents around what it means to um, encourage and support their grandchildren right and what are the right expectations to have um on their grandchildren i think that's a big one is like just getting the expectations right because because they they didn't have the same experience and opportunities that their grandchildren
0: are now having as we know that uh, China is carrying out this um, reforms in, in the education sector if I ask you to provide some um, suggestion for the policymakers what would you say to them maybe Stephen
6: I mean I would just offer encouragement mm. um, and say you're on the right track um you know so so the first changes that we saw were around broadening the children's um, educational experience and introducing different forms of learning and introducing extracurricular. And then what we're seeing more recently is the drive to raise awareness and mental health. Mm. So I would say, you know, the policies and everything are all right. And we we are very encouraged by that. Yeah, I mean, my suggestion would be just give more support. <laughs> yeah more supports maybe even more finances to those policies and those initiatives because i think they are the right ones
0: and ruth
5: yeah my the only thing i would add to that is maybe to also focus a bit more on equipping parents and caregivers so a lot of the focus at the moment is on broadening children's horizons and giving kids more opportunities Um, and i think that's fantastic and much needed but i would also say that parents and grandparents, they need to be equipped as well. And mm. um, because, yeah, the, the home is the first environment that kids learn in. And so if grandparents and parents can be equipped with ways to build good communication in families, build good habits, learn how to train and coach and encourage their children well, I think that would be extremely helpful mm. um, in the long term as well.
0: That's a good one. I
5: think also, yeah, just to to build a sense of hope for families as well. I think we've encountered a lot of people who clearly love their children very much, but they feel like they don't know how to provide good opportunities or how to ensure their children's success. And so I think just being able to give parents and grandparents a sense of hope by equipping them, I think that would also, you know, it would change a lot and be very helpful.
0: This has been the Chat Lounge, we continue our special edition right after the break.
3: The first day I was here, I just love China. Why China
7: instead of other countries? That's
4: the essence of China. Why the village instead of the city? When we talk about Shang Sun, you know, rural revitalization. As
7: China's rural revitalization continues, we talk to expats to find out their reasons for choosing to live in the country's villages for years or even decades.
4: Everyone knew and everyone cared about See around them, people investing in that.
7: They also share their experiences and views on the development and reconstruction of the countryside over the years.
3: The village became much cleaner. So that was the best thing because all the families got back together.
7: Learn more about what's going on in China's vast rural areas through my expat life in rural China, here on Chat Lounge.
3: With a history of 5000 years, it's no surprise that China has created a fabulous treasury of folk tales.
7: Once a year, on the 7th day of the 7th month, all the magpies fly up to heaven and form a bridge.
3: So many amazing worlds to discover. "I want a new palace," said King Mu of Zhou one day. Chinese folk tales retold for audiences today. "Will will you marry me?" he
0: asked. Welcome back to the Chat Lounge. Another significant priority in China's rural revitalization efforts this year is to enhance the establishment of a rural ecological civilization. Persistent actions will be taken to combat agricultural and rural pollution, advance rural ecological preservation and rehabilitation through initiatives such as decreasing the use of chemical fertilizers and pesticides, and promoting a model focused on planting and breeding circulation. What Daniel Willers and Morgan Jones have achieved at their organic farm in China provides evidence why ecological protection and restoration is so necessary.
2: Another thing about agriculture is, is, you know, in the States we talk sometimes about is seeing a, a microwave culture. We just want everything instantly. And in agriculture, that's... Great if you use chemical fertilizers and and pesticides, it can be a lot faster. But when you're doing stuff organically, it it can sometimes be a longer process. Yeah, so the insects would be,
1: and I think from what I know about other organic farmers, that's the biggest challenge Mm. is the insects because there's just not good solutions for it. There are some organic sprays you can use, but they are not as effective as chemical pesticides. So it really only works on contact. So mm-hmm. if you're able to spray the insect, then it will work. But what we found was, you know, anytime you spray something that's designed to kill insects, it kills the harmful insects, but it also kills the beneficial insect. And so it's not really a long-term solution to the problem. So we do, we do. there's a plant-derived spray that we use to to spray insects. We do use that if we have to. But our approach is more to create a balanced ecosystem. So we're not trying to get rid of all the the insects uh, because we want the beneficial ones. We want the beneficial ones to control the harmful ones. Mm -hmm. So we do things like we plant a lot of flowering things that that attract beneficial insects uh, and also create a habitat for them to live. Another thing we do is we use uh, pheromone traps. Mm. So it, it puts out a scent that attracts the male species of the harmful insect. And then the idea is if we catch all the males, then they can't reproduce. So it's not a quick fix, it, you know, it takes time for that. So those are, yeah, some of the strategies we use. Fresh produce, we've only seen an increase in demand for our products That's good. Uh, because people are, are becoming more health conscious yeah, after the pandemic.
0: The first policy blueprint also underlines a strategy for nurturing talent, encompassing the training of local individuals from rural areas and facilitating the transition of professional and technical experts from urban areas to contribute to rural development through enhancements to the evaluation and incentive system. That, according to Dutch tulip grower Niklas Geek, is essential in the process of rural revitalization. GAIK has helped to transform a small village in the eastern coastal province of Jiangsu, in the country's first sea of tulips over the past decade.
7: What I do is I, I, I say to the potential young guys or ladies, you can also get a good salary. If you do your job well, of course you get a good salary. Because Incentive. nobody uh, wants to work for a low salary, uh, no. hard working for a low salary. Because if you are, if I'm satisfied, you do your job very well, yes. the company may profit. No, okay, you need to earn money. So the salary is one, uh, one of the things to make the job interesting for young people and to make career, of course.
0: But to American Adrian Brill, it takes more than just money to attract young talents to work and live in the countryside has become an online food influencer in China after opening a pizzeria in a small village in the eastern province of Anhui. He's been appointed as a rural ambassador to promote revitalization of local villages. To
8: persuade or you know stimulate young people to go to the countryside and start a business, I think it's a very difficult thing to do. And if you don't have subsidies, if you don't have mm-hmm. funds or, or, or money uh, mm-hmm. to, to persuade them, then nobody's going to do it, and that's that's what part of this is all about. Though, like mm. what what we have here in in Nanshan, we have you know, nine, we have nine or ten or or, or even more now, mm. uh, new businesses here. These businesses, including us, we were all subsidized by the government, right? So we participated in this project with government subsidy, right? And if we didn't have that, then we wouldn't be here as well, mm-hmm. right?
0: But what about red tapes? You've ever the encountered t- mm. any limits or restrictions that you feel well, if they can be dropped or scratched scrapped Ugh. i mean no
8: i mean we were invited here we right. were given a lot of support you know whenever we had problems you know we would solve it and so limitations i no i don't feel limited i feel like we're we're free to be creative we're free to be here and and do what we think is best mm-hmm. um but we were given this opportunity uh you know we weren't like oh i want to open a restaurant and i and I know the best place to do it is in Nanxinan. No, mm. We were invited to come here and there was a policy, right? Mm. There were there were subsidies, mm. right? Mm. And I think that's an important part mm. of stimulating young people to go back to mm. the countryside. And that's what happened here for us. Mm-hmm. Like, right. I, get, I offer amazing. you a place, you come here, you bring your talent. Like right. you said something about human resources, mm. right? Mm. The resources that we want coming to the countryside are these young college graduates. Mm-hmm. They're the human talent, but how do we get that talent here, mm. right? And so... <laughs> As a university graduate, why, in your right mind, would you go to the countryside yeah. and start a business rather than go to a place where you know there's a strong, thriving economy? Mm. Right.
0: If you were a local government official, mm. what kind of policy would you introduce?
8: Well, I mean, it depends on on what your local specialty is. Um, Just take and this. Um, who your audience is, right?
0: For instance, here in 99 or in other villages of Huangshan.
8: Yeah, I mean, let's see here. So here in Nanshinan, we're in Huangshan. It's a tourist destination. We have Huangshan University, right? I think that Nanshinan needs more than what we have now, mm-hmm. right? And we do in need to continue of? to attract uh, more young people right. to do interesting things here. Like, it can be anything. It can be artistic, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, Huangshan we have we have an art, uh, a department of the arts Right. Mm -hmm. You could totally, you know, offer a space where young artists can come and practice. Mm -hmm. Right. They can live in this peaceful environment. They can be inspired by nature. Right. They can be inspired by the locals. Right. Mm -hmm. And they can they can create. Mm -hmm. Right. And that naturally is an attraction. Right. Mm -hmm. That tourists would be interested in. Right. And then these young graduates could sell their pieces. Mm -hmm. Right. And it just creates a platform. right? Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think, you know, that could be part of what we do here. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be something that if I were a local official, yeah, that I could mm-hmm. consider, right?
0: You probably didn't um, aim for what you've got right now or aim to be part of the country's um, Rev- revitalization, revitalization campaign. But in the end, or eventually, you've become part of it, right? right. So a little bit more about this um, campaign or drive in this country. Mm-hmm. Adrienne, you also teach English at a local, at Huangshan University? Yeah. Right. And the, what percentage of them, or of your students, want to work in rural China?
8: I mean, that's interesting you ask that question, um, because actually I've noticed a change in my students over the past few years. Um, you know, several years ago, obviously we talk about their futures, like right. what they want and what they wish for, what they dream of, where they see themselves in five years, and 10 years, etc., Um, And several years ago, most of my students would say, oh, well, you know, I need to go to Hangzhou or Shanghai. I need to, uh, you know, find more uh, economically uh, developed areas. Right. right, Go to more economically developed areas where all of the resources are, where all the opportunities are. um, And that's just something that they thought was their obvious next step. Um, And recently in the past year or two, more of my students. In fact, I think most of my students now, when they when I ask them the same question, very few say, I want to go to Hanzhou or Shanghai or whatever. Oh. They say, I want to go back to my hometown. And I think there's more than just, you know, countryside revitalization that plays a part in this. Like, uh, I mean, pressure, societal pressure is really high. Um, you know, there's a lot of, it's it's difficult to land a good job in mm-hmm. the big cities, etc. So there there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. that these students have. But I think they also see that there's kind of a shift in focus and a shift in, in resources that's a leaving the city and going back to their hometowns and i'm sure they can Mm -hmm. see that you know there's more investment in their hometowns and so you know as university graduates they say well i there is a chance for me to find a job in my hometown Mm -hmm. all right and i think you know as for rural places or or the countryside i don't think they're they're there quite yet Mm -hmm. um, because they're english majors most of them are probably going to be english Mm -hmm. teachers right Mm -hmm. um and so you know they have to be in a place where there's a school. Mm-hmm. Right? That's true. Um, yeah. But, you know, they do see a change in what's happening nationally where there's kind of a shift in resources mm. from not only the big cities, but now in the smaller cities.
0: Did you count how many of them?
8: Well, it's definitely the majority now. <laughs> the, the majority oh, of my students don't want to that. go to Hangzhou or Shanghai. But on
0: the mm-hmm. other hand, do you think it's the government interferes too much? Because, you know, people are saying it's free market. You don't have to, you know... Mm. Um,
8: No, I don't. Um, You can only let the market be free to a certain extent. mm. Like, I'm not a free marketist. I think it's important that government exists and helps money get into the right people's hands.
0: And Ian Hamilton from South Africa and Brian Linden from the United States highlight the significance of a sense of belonging.
3: It's interesting because when we first opened for business, we had no Chinese customers. Once we started getting some customers, no Chinese customers come at all. It was only foreigners because I think at that point, Chinese people from a village had worked so hard to be able to move to Shanghai or Beijing (laughs) and buy their nice expensive apartment. They weren't going to go to some little village that didn't even have a road going to it for their holiday because they worked so hard to get away from that. And I think what started happening probably also because of the the sort of rural revitalization project, mm. is a lot more Chinese people have already started going and staying in villages now. So then we we start getting a lot more Chinese customers and they want to do sort of, you know, go back to the village, yes. back to the countryside. So I think the idea of sending college graduates and, and stuff to villages is also very good because I think it's important for people to have that connection of not long ago, this is actually where you were. Mm-hmm. Probably a lot of college graduates no, actually, were born in a village as mm-hmm. well. Yes. And it's a much better life, I think, than living in the city. Uh, you know, it's, it's a bit football.
0: too much crowded, like uh, Brian just said. It's a challenge. It's it d- a yeah, it depends yeah, it's what people are
4: coming to do, in, mm-hmm. if they're coming to the village. What- because, you know, say Shijo when I arrived and 10 years ago, there were no coffee shops in yeah. yeah. Now I think you saw probably 50 coffee shops. Yeah, I was quite excited. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> and I love coffee too,
2: and I think
4: it's really dynamic. But when does that become a little bit inconsistent with what Shijo was mm-hmm. and the spirit of Shijo? Is Shijo just solely a facade that can be injected with new ideas, mm-hmm. maybe that's the reality. And that's what a lot of young people, I think the creativity can do in China. But I still think there's also some value to we've inherited from the past yeah. in certain areas that maybe should be mm-hmm. marked for preservation. Mm-hmm. We do that around the world. When you go to Venice, you're not staying in a brand new concrete, cement, mm-hmm. and glass hotel. You stay in what existed in Venice for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. The bathroom may not be very contemporary, but you that's accept what you're going it, for, that's yeah. what you're going for. That's the experience. So we cannot just cater to a wealthy elite that need you know, 70 square meter ba- bedrooms yeah. wherever they go, because what will happen is the, the, the tradition, the real resources of these areas are going to be destroyed then in the pursuit of satisfying that, that small elite.
0: True, and what would be your suggestions for those college graduates if they want to start their own business in villages? Don't come.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think, I think, but um, yeah, I think it's, it's hard. You know what I wish we could do is, mm-hmm. is really just have owner occupied purchasing power where those were young people or people like you and me, we could come here and we could buy the home mm-hmm. and then we're invested in the community, but you have to live there. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you would have a lot of people coming in and speculating and investors. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that would handle two things. One, it would make sure that we would invest our full energy and money in making the best thing we could do, because it's ours. Well, this idea that, you know, in some way, maybe in the future, I hope that young people can return to the villages, but invest and raise their family in these villages, Um, bring back their talents, Mm -hmm. and also invest so that their children will be raised alongside the local children. Mm -hmm. They'll go to the same schools, so that in the future... You know, maybe the your village will not be solely related to the village head. He may not know everybody, mm. but there will be a lot of people with vested interests in making sure that that community turns out okay, that the education yeah. is good, everything. And this is something that I hope, but we need to have people live there.
3: Yeah. Well, I think ideally, in an ideal world, this has never happened, um, people, if you're a college graduate or something from Shanghai, you'd come and partner with somebody locally and do something together, and that would someone from the village and someone from outside. Course, but I think that would be very, very hard <laughs> to ever get right because it would be people with very different ideas about how, how everything works. But I think that would be ideal, is just saying, okay, you're going to come in and then you're going to be partnered with somebody from the local community, so you're going to be forced to be part of that community.
0: Then they um, would say if a foreigner can do that, we as a Chinese should be able to, yeah, right? <laughs> yes, that's I true. I would think so. I
4: yeah, mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, in many ways, Ian, we've, we're, we're examples of success. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've, we've gone to very small villages and we are continuing to grow and... Um...
3: I think maybe if I have a success, it's it was because it wasn't planned, <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem. I think it was just something that happened. So I think it's much harder to plan it because I just said, oh, I come save a building, oh dear going to do business. There's no customers. Oh, some customers arrived. Oh, I'll get another building.
0: Hey, there's some more customers. Get another building. What advice would you give them as um as someone who's so successful in doing uh, this in, in rural China?
4: I just feel that one thing I think both of us that we share is is just passion and something that goes beyond just day-to-day business. We don't. I don't think we evaluate. I don't know. I'm speaking for you, but I don't evaluate my success solely based on how much money I'm making. In fact, what Ian just said about being a part of the ancestors, you know, and mm. being that part of the Mao family, that is probably the greatest, you know, the greatest treasure he could receive. It is. Yeah. And that to me goes far beyond any monetary mm. benefits. Yeah. So for me, I very admire that. And I would say you're richer be it than you go beyond all riches. It's my happiest story in the yeah, whole world. And it's right. <laughs> it and really I'm, is. And yeah. I think yeah. this is something that... I hope young people, I hope that you can feel it. I hope that others can someday feel that, that idea of being accepted, being respected for what you're giving and what you're sharing with a local community, not solely by how much money is in your pocket. And this is something that I feel he has achieved and we hopefully are achieving well as well. Um, most people I speak to
3: in China who have lived in cities and in the countryside as adults prefer the countryside because it's much less stressful, it's much more peaceful, uh, you know more people, it's more friendly, a more easy-going lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And I would think that's the biggest advertisement that you can have for being in the village rather than being in Shanghai or somewhere. Mm-hmm. In the, the village I live in, in Joseon village, they actually, after I'd opened the secret garden and I was on TV, on Chinese TV some Chinese people saw this program from Shanghai and Beijing and Hangzhou and mm-hmm. wherever and were stressed in their lives and thought hey if this funny little foreign bloke can come and do a business sure. in the countryside we can too and they came and moved to the village but they don't really interact with people locally and they don't have very good relations with people in the village mm-hmm. because they are millionaires from, from Beijing or Shanghai, coming to what is still a reasonably poor village, mm. um, and don't interact with people. So I would say, if you are a college graduate and you your life is stressful or you are living in a big city, move to the countryside, but interact with people locally, yes, meet yes. the amazing people, and then you'll have the really lovely life. Mm. But if you just go there to make money and do business, then you really miss the best part of. The whole right, process, right. which is the people and the lifestyle and everything there. So, if you feel like you want to do that, make sure you go and actually meet people and your your moody, oh, I can't think of the English yeah. word, your mission, goal, your mission, your objective, yeah, goal, whatever. Or whatever, It not to go and make money or something, but it's actually to have a good lifestyle. Yeah, and then you work.
0: And how can we ensure individuals already residing and employed in rural China, including the expats we've spoken with, remain engaged in furthering rural revitalization efforts. Perhaps insights into their future plans could provide valuable hints.
4: I guess for my wife and me, for the two of us, we hope in some way to stay in China forever. Mm. Um, We have invested all our money, you know, everything here. Um, We raised our children here. This is their home as well. Mm. Our youngest son will return to China. He just finished his graduate degree in environmental planning and he will join our team. Um, my goal is to continue to tell the real stories of China to the outside world. Mm-hmm. And um, those stories um, go beyond just what is happening in the big cities, and it's the stories of the local people. It's the stories that Ian, I'll be telling Ian's story now to friends. And these are the things that I really feel are very, very important. So I hope to remain here forever. And um, it's, yeah, if the Chinese people welcome us, we would, we would love to stay.
0: Yeah, of course, we welcome you all. And uh, Ian, what are you going to do um, when Secret Garden's uh, 20-year lease expires? Go um, here and join yeah. our team <laughs> together, okay? Lago, lago. Yeah. Hey, it's, <laughs> it's a binding. The
3: verbal contract is binding. Um, yeah, as long as um, I keep getting visas, I also want to keep staying in China forever. I've been really, really lucky. At the Secret Garden, we have 26 landlords altogether for the different oh, buildings. and. Um, I don't have any troubles with any of the landlords ever. And I'd be very happy. I think there's about seven or eight years left on most of the buildings, for Secret Garden. I'd be very happy then to uh, return all those properties to the landlords in the, again, my ideal little world I live in, where sometimes it comes true. They would be able to keep on running the business themselves. Um, I mentioned I have another guest house, The Lost World in Sanjiang, Chinyang, which we just started five years ago. So those buildings, ancient wooden wooden houses, that we still have 15 years to go on that lease. Um, and then I've just rented one new house also next to the Yulong River in Yangshuo near the Yulong Bridge. And I'm working on that at the moment. Um, but that's just gonna be one building which I'm gonna let out to people completely. So that's got 20 years to go. So by then I'll be 70 or something, so. I'll, I'll probably rent another building <laughs> and keep on going. Uh, I, I really, I absolutely. I, I, think I'm like happier than anyone I know. I have the most amazing life. I absolutely love it, um, and I just want to keep doing this. Um, and I don't want to retire. I just want to keep working. And it's so amazing to keep getting all these opportunities, it's just to do what you want yes, to do,
4: exactly,
3: and to be able to help some other people and to yeah, actually make a small difference somehow. It's mm. so lucky. So I want to keep on for another fifty years.
2: Whatever we do in the future, it's, it's who can say. But I think we still want to be involved in agriculture at some mm-hmm. point. You know, I, I could see ourselves even in, in retirement <laughs> years down the road, still doing some kind of small farming or, or different things somewhere mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah, it's important to make profit, but that, that will come. Mm. And in the meantime, we already see a lot of cool things happening.
0: Mm. But in the States, actually, we've seen some, uh, you know, small farms, their living space has been uh, increasingly squeezed, you know. Uh, Some even go bankrupt, uh, especially after the three-year COVID pandemic. So, Morgan, are you worried about a similar scenario in China?
1: Uh, It is true. um, Over the last several years, farms in America have consolidated more and more. I think what we're doing, this style of farming those farms are are growing all the time because it gives people a lot more access to agriculture without needing a huge amount of farmland. Mm -hmm. One thing we say in agriculture, agriculture is a a recession-proof industry. The reality is people will always need to eat. And here in China, fresh vegetables are such an important part of the diet. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really see demand for... Uh, fresh produce going down over the next five years. So I think we're quite confident that it will continue to grow. And, you know, just talking about, you know, young people and being more interested in agriculture, um, I think we're in a good position Mm -hmm. over the next five years. But like Daniel said, we don't necessarily know what it'll look like, but we will be involved in some aspect of, of this style of farming uh, for the rest of our lives, but
0: what people can consume like daily is closely related to their income, right? Related to the country's economy. And many people initially had full confidence, like you just said, in China's economic recovery after the pandemic. But due to weakening demand, both at home and abroad, China's economic performance so far has not. Turned out to be that impressive. So are you too worried about the future?
2: You know, economic cycles come and go. It's, mm. it's a part of life. And so I think, yeah, we're, we're in a good position of, you know, being able to persevere through challenges. And economic challenges are, are just a challenge as much as insects and diseases mm. are a challenge. And so it's just another type of challenge. And how are you going to get through it? be creative, think outside the box, adapt to the market. You know, one of the things, it's kind of funny, we get a lot of feedback sometimes about our price points. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people say your prices are too low. You're not valuing your product enough. And others say your prices are too high. We Mm -hmm. can't afford your product. But we, we really haven't wanted to make our prices too high that they're not affordable for the average person. And so, yeah, I think it's comparable, you know, if somebody goes to a, a supermarket to buy their vegetables instead of a morning market. You know, the morning market's the cheapest price you can find. Uh, supermarket's probably the most expensive price you can find. I'd say we're, we're competitive in, in those ranges. So we'll see what happens. But... <laughs> don't
6: have plans to move to bigger cities um, because, yeah, I think the connections and the community that, that we, um, we love is, is here. Not that we don't enjoy visiting, the coffee in Shanghai is great. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I think I think we committed. We committed to to where we are. In terms of future plans, we are very excited. Yeah, to work with um our, our friend and yeah, just to share our expertise um around yeah raising awareness for for mental health issues, and yeah, we want to make ourselves available and yeah see see where that goes. So. I don't know if it, if I would say future plans, um, as much as um, yeah, maybe just I making ourselves available. And, dream. And, yeah, dream, dream maybe is a better word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> our dream would be that yeah that we are able to to use yeah our expertise in that area to to help and to to be able to do something new and new and different in, in this community.
5: Yeah, so <laughs> I I think I agree with everything that Stephen said and. Um, one of one of our dreams is we are quite aware that in some of the villages around us, there are lots of schools that are no longer in use um, because kids have moved to study in bigger cities. And so oh, it just seems to me like such a wonderful opportunity to use these schools and maybe turn them into places of family learning. And um, so, yeah, I, as I said, it's just a dream at this point. Um, but maybe, in the future, the government would consider using some of these schools and, and making them a place where families can learn together. Um, yeah, and if, if we could be a part of that or any help along that journey, um, for me, that would be an incredible dream and a privilege.
0: You're planning to start a new breeding program based on the local climate. Um, how's the plan uh, coming along? Uh, when can we see the new varieties?
7: The breeding program has to be uh, exe- executed. You know, uh, we are not in uh, working together with an uh, R&D institute at this moment.
0: Mm, uh, which one it, here in? Uh, maybe it will
7: uh, be Jensen or a Nanjing, help. Oh, you know, okay. Maybe a, a combination of uh, Jensen R&D institute with help of Nanjing University. Right. Uh, so we have to set a breeding uh, program. Yeah, it is not executed yet, but that will be uh, soon. And then next it takes year?
0: Hmm? next year
7: yeah next year or, or maybe after next year right and, uh, because first year you, uh, you need to have a database about the varieties uh, which one grows well here in uh, Dafun now I have mm. at this moment so they can start with my uh, experience and uh, yeah then it takes 25 years to have uh, a tulip uh, ready for the market.
0: 25 years 25 years. That means yeah. you may not be able to see it.
7: Um, I don't know. You try,
0: (laughs) try your best. Right,
7: yeah. yeah.
4: By the way, how old is Nicole this year? (laughs) No, you can't ask that question.
0: Just making random assumptions. Younger than his age. Looks younger than (laughs) his age, I mean. That I'm sure. Right. (laughs) So apart from Yancheng, are you considering promoting tulip planting in other places in China?
7: Yeah, we already have some uh, some contacts, oh, okay. that, and, uh, in in Gubei province. And uh, yeah, that will uh, work out, I think, next mm-hmm. year if we have the the right machinery, the modern machinery. Right. And then uh, yeah, we start to collaborate with them, and we give uh, technical support and everything and what is needed.
0: Our future plan. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a must-answer <laughs> question.
5: Future plan. Make
7: with more With a
0: pizzeria, <laughs> make <laughs> more pizza,
5: <laughs> make open other few pizzerias. Yeah, I like mean, in China.
0: I understand you got this challenge of of, of making 100 types of uh, pizzas?
8: Yeah, something like that. Oh yes, make, yeah. oh, yes.
5: make right. 100 types of pizza. Right.
8: So, yeah, what day we'll make... already? Well, no, no, not halfway through. It's a slow process. Like I said, we're, you know, we're busy operating the business and so until recently we don't really have a lot of time mm-hmm. to slow down and do other things. Um, but yeah, you know, we would like to continue to participate in countryside projects. We think we feel that 周恩的小食堂 is a wonderful addition to, you know, the countryside. Indeed. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it just is suited to the mm. countryside. And it's, mm. I, I feel like we're not suited to the city scene. Like, what we do is very kind of countryside style. Mm. And so, you know, 南西南 is really wonderful. But there are many wonderful villages, villages around Huangshan, and it would be cool. If we could not only promote Manxinan, mm. but we could continue to promote mm. other, other local villages in Huangshan as well.
0: Right. Yeah. Another, like a more ambitious plan to extend it across the country. <laughs> <laughs> step by step. Baby steps. <laughs> Baby steps. With that, we wrap up this special episode. Please feel free to leave a review or comment for us. Just email radio at cgtn.com. I'm Tuyun. Thank you for being with us. Until next time, take care.